But uh, I was really shocked after you know, reading the results from the survey. Actually, 74% of my students actually preferred uh, asynchronous. Nobody or zero student preferred a 100% synchronous format. and welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, a podcast about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. My name is Dr. Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, titled Teaching a Zen Buddhism Course Online with Student Preferences in Mind, I speak with Dagena Duor, a PhD student in Buddhist studies at UC Santa Barbara. She taught a class fully remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic shutdowns this past summer at UC Santa Barbara. One of the teaching strategies she used was scheduling flexible, yet mandatory, Zoom one-on-one appointments with her students related to their papers, something she said the students responded really well to in the post-course feedback. In this episode, we'll learn how one instructor successfully developed and delivered this course on Zen Buddhism almost entirely asynchronously, meaning there were no meetings together in real time, other than those Zoom one-on-one sessions, Instead, students accessed the learning materials, watched her lecture videos, and submitted assignments at different times. Dagene used a pre-course survey before the course to decide this because that was what they wanted, and this helped her meet the needs and expectations of her students. She used many different and creative strategies to engage her students, and since many of her students were taking this course for a general education requirement, she was sure to remain focused on developing real-world skills they would need in reading texts, analyzing media, and presenting research in creative ways. If this is interesting to you, please subscribe to our show, The Circled Square, and also please share this with your friends. Enjoy our conversation. So thanks so much for being here, Dagena. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So could you please um, just start for us by introducing yourself, starting with my name is and telling us a little bit about your background and what you study, etc. Sure. Um, so hi, everyone, the, all the listeners of the Circle Square. My name is Dagena Dur, and I'm currently a fourth year PhD student in religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I major in Buddhist studies and my dissertation Right now is going to be a digital humanities project uh, mapping transnational and transregional Buddhist networks centered in early 20th century Inner Mongolia and Manchuria. And actually, before coming to UCSB, I actually did both of my BA and MA in Buddhist studies at the University of Toronto. So, yay! <laughs> I had a great time. I I really learned a lot from the wonderful professors and fellow graduate students there. So it's really a pleasure to be part of this podcast and speaking with my alma mater again. Oh, well, thank you. It's really nice to get to speak with you again in, in this evolution of your life. And yeah, and your research sounds so interesting. I'm so excited for it. We're interviewing you, especially in light of your teaching this past summer. So can you tell us a little bit about what you taught this summer? Yeah, so this summer I taught uh, this course called Zen Buddhism, uh, which is a introductory course on Zen Buddhism for undergraduate students at UCSB. Um, so most of them just take it for a GE requirement, just general education. Um, some of them do take it out of interest, but it's a uh, introductory course. And had you taught much before or was this a new teaching experience? For Zen Buddhism, I've only served as a teaching assistant for this course uh, before the summer, uh, which is usually taught by Professor Gregory Hillis at UCSB, who is just like a really, really wonderful professor and the students really love him. So this was my first time teaching this specific course on Zen Buddhism as the instructor. But before this course, I was able to um, teach Introduction to Buddhism in the summer, in the previous summer and also Introduction to Japanese Religions last fall. Yeah, both courses were also introductory courses for undergraduate students, like survey courses on the, on the topic. Um, and they were both taught in person, of course, and this was before the COVID-19 outbreak, which seems like a really long time ago. I know. I know the before yeah. times, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to ask you also about your intro to Buddhism, but I'm going to hold off on that for now. Because, yeah, what we really wanted to talk to you about was what was sort of different this time around, i.e. online and in the age of this COVID pandemic? Yeah, there's so many things that are different. Um, So with COVID-19, it's definitely very different in terms of the class structure, how you meet the students, right? how you kind of set up grading and and so on and so forth. 
And uh, it was also kind of an emergency move uh, online to remote teaching. Um, so all classes were really quickly moved online in the spring for our, our university. So the summer instructors had to really quickly figure out, you know, how to switch their courses into an online format. Many of us, for example, other graduate students have taught the courses before and they already have the syllabus and they already have the materials ready. But then, you know, boom, suddenly you have to kind of switch all that, transform all that preparation beforehand into remote teaching, into something that's suitable for online teaching. So it's really emergency and, and unlike online courses, of course, are developed that get to be developed over time with ample preparation. But our university actually provided a lot of support. So uh, luckily, I was able to get a lot of help from both um, the technology side and also the pedagogy side. So my department, as the lead TA um, for our department last year, I was I got the opportunity to organize a series of workshops where I was able to invite really experienced TAs and also instructors in my department to kind of get together and um, get ideas about teaching uh, religion online. So we had a workshop called TAing um, Religion Online in March. That's right after our campus went into lockdown. So at that workshop, I invited three really experienced and really tech-savvy TAs in my department. So William Chavez, Maharshi Avias, and Peter uh, Romaskiewicz. Um, and they all shared tips, strategies, and applications and resources for TAing religion online. And that was really helpful for my course design. Uh, we also created a handbook uh, for our TAs from our slides, which I can provide, you know, in the links to our podcast, maybe. Sure, that'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for kind of outlining the difference too. Because yeah, emergency remote teaching is, I mean, of course, what we were all doing in the spring and in the summer. And I mean, maybe some people are really still doing it in the fall in some cases, if, you know, because many schools only decided late to be fully remote in the fall. We really wanted to do this interview with you because you did such an amazing job of getting feedback from your students about what they did and didn't like in the experience of emergency remote teaching that so many of us could use as we develop more effective online teaching going forward. Because many of us are now kind of realizing slash being told that many of us are going to stay remote probably for most of this year and winter and spring. And I think it's on us if we're not doing a better job by, with remote teaching by January. Of course, in you know a first experience with emergency remote teaching, we're not doing everything perfectly, but there's a lot to learn, right, from what what you did with your students and what you would do differently. How did you structure the class? What did this structure emphasize for your students? I think it's really useful to just ask the students directly when you want to get sort of opinions or ideas about how to better structure the class uh, for online teaching. So that's that's also what I did but before the course began. I attended those kind of pedagogy and online teaching kind of training seminars that our university provided. But I also created a pre-course um, anonymous survey, which is similar to the survey that I posted uh, post-course. Right. So a pre-course like survey of the students who are signing up? Yeah, for the students who are already enrolled and also for students who are waitlisted in the course. So I asked them about their preferences uh, to online teaching. Do they prefer synchronous or asynchronous? Their current situations with regard to the pandemic, uh, their perceptions about religion and Zen, whether if they have backgrounds um, in Buddhist studies and things like that, to get a general sense of how I should uh, better structure the course. So before that, I had plans for the course. I had planned to meet them uh, in real time, synchronously, just sort of holding the regular lecture, but in an online format. But uh, I was really shocked after and reading the results from the survey, actually 74% of my students actually preferred uh, asynchronous. And then the rest preferred a mix. Nobody or zero student preferred a 100% synchronous format. It was really shocking. I had assumed that everybody probably wanted to get more you know, face-to-face interaction. Yeah. And just for our listeners who might not know, so synchronous means at the same time, like on Zoom or... Microsoft Teams or whatever your school might use, whereas asynchronous means probably pre-recording things and then having the students respond by deadlines, but not necessarily meeting up. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so most students did prefer um, to not meet in real time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amazing, yeah. 
And also, who were your students? Like, were your students religion majors or not necessarily? Uh, yeah. So uh, about the student makeup. So I had um, 27 students sign up for the class who also stayed till the end. And only one student um, out of that uh, group uh, was a religious studies major. By the way, he did a really wonderful um, media um, essay, which I will talk about later as one of the examples. Um, but the rest of them were, you know, majoring in various different topics, economics, biology, and they're signing up for, you know, fulfilling the G requirements. Right, right. Religion is a breadth requirement in their case. Amazing. So did you take them up on that suggestion? Did you do it mostly asynchronously? Yes. So I really changed a lot of my plans originally for the class to best meet their preferences and needs. So I decided to do the entire class um, with recorded lectures, but I also wanted to keep some kind of face-to-face interaction. So I um, incorporated mandatory um, Zoom kind of appointments uh, to discuss their papers. Um, but it was more of a soft mandatory. Um, I also, you know, told them that if they're really uncomfortable with meeting me in person, like turning their camera on, I also understand we can just, you know, talk through voice. It's also okay turning off the camera. I understand that some students might have uh, difficult situations at home. They're probably not very comfortable about showing um, their surrounding or the rooms, things like that. Um so it's kind of flexible about that. But um, the students really kind of enjoy that from the, the post-survey, post-course survey, that they enjoyed this little bit of a you know, one-to-one also face-to-face interaction. Wonderful. And I'm just curious, did they turn their cameras on or not? Um, so 90% of the students did. Um, and, they, and we ended up you know, speaking more than 30 minutes per student. So um, that took uh, quite a few days to complete all 27 uh, appointments. But it was really fun. It was really fun learning about their interests in the in the class and also a bit about their themselves, right? What they were doing, their part-time jobs, things like that. So um, I thought that was a really interesting kind of um, aspect of the course that it's lucky to include. Yeah. So how did you engage your students in your online video lectures? What t- tools did you use to keep those videos alive and keep yourself engaged too in, in recording them? That's a great question. Uh, it was really difficult to um, evaluate engagement, right? Especially when you're recording uh, these lectures uh, like alone in your house. Uh, you, just, you just have to kind of guess what the reactions might be. So our university, we use Panopto and um, actually you get to see um, student engagement in numbers in a way. How many students have watched the video um, from where to where, you can kind of see that in numbers. But it, but then again, it's hard to see, hard to sort of evaluate how much, which part of the lecture was interesting for the student, um, which part is confusing and things like that. Um, but I did try to embed multimedia as much as possible. Um, for example, showing clips, um, you know, incorporating actual rituals or actual meditations. So just trying to show um, the sights and the sounds and atmosphere of certain aspects of religious practice, showing lots of images, um, as much as little text as possible, and also using a lot of voice acting. For example, I, I acted out some Dharma battles. Awesome. What do you mean by that? Like you played two voices? So in debate yeah, or something? played out the scenario, um, trying to sort of show the, I guess, the atmosphere right, and the attitudes of, of the master versus the student. This is a technique I learned from Professor um, Hillis from UCSB. He, when he taught Zen, he usually, usually incorporated those things that really caught the student's attention. He used the shock method of Zen to teach Zen. Yeah, so definitely embedding a lot of multimedia. I thought that was useful. The students also um, commented on that too. But so you had to, you created quite a lot of content though, right? Even you were, how much were you recording in for, for a week? You were doing like four meetings. And they were all like an hour and a half almost? Yeah. Um, so our structure at UCSB for the summer classes is that um, it's six weeks and you meet, this is before the pandemic, so you meet in person four times a week, um, eight minutes each uh, for each lecture, 80 minutes. Yeah. So an hour and a half. Um, so it's quite a lot. So I just assumed that, you know, that's probably what is required of me as an instructor, uh, the, the amount of content that I was supposed to deliver. So I recorded the 
lectures um, in according to this kind of format. So 80-minute long lectures, which was difficult, <laughs> but um, so with editing, um, that was, was possible. So what I did um, to structure the content of the, the course is that it's in six weeks. So I did the first two weeks um, as sort of background information on the history of Buddhism, um, early Buddhism, and also Buddhist philosophy, philosophy, philosophical foundations for Zen traditions, since a lot of students, actually the majority, have never um, you know, had a class on religion nor Buddhism. So we spent the first two weeks sort of talking about the foundations of Buddhism. And then in the third week, uh, we went to Chan Buddhism in China. So we discussed you know, the usual transmissions, lineages, schools, and philosophies. I'd also put an emphasis on um, practice, Chan Buddhism in practice. So here I kind of wanted to emphasize how Chan Buddhism is not just a philosophical tradition, right? The monks are not just preoccupied with meditation, Dharma battles, but they also valued rituals uh, and manual labor and things like that. Um, and also in the fourth lecture, I turned our attention to Chan Buddhism in modern and contemporary East Asia. This is a topic that I'm personally interested in for my research anyway. So we talked about, for example, the Buddhist revival of the creation of humanistic uh, modern Buddhism and also its legacy in many parts of the Chinese-speaking world today. And then in week four, we turn to Zen Buddhism in Japan. The structure is kind of similar, um, but here we also talked about Zen Buddhism's involvement in um, World War II and also the colonization of many parts of East Asia under the Japanese Empire. This is part of my research, and many students have never heard of uh, Zen Buddhist participation in, in such acts, and they were quite shocked. Um, and also for contemporary Zen, um, in the fourth lecture, we discussed how Zen is portrayed in post-war Japanese pop culture which, you know, a lot of students are really interested in anime and movies and so on and so forth. Um, but also how contemporary Zen Buddhism in Japan are using really creative ways to kind of revamp themselves, um, using really eye-catching, but sometimes also controversial methods, such as, you know, the, the monk bar uh, phenomena where monks are sitting at bars, serving alcohol, and it's becoming sort of a, a tourist trap <laughs> in a way. Uh, monk. Sorry, are they real monks? Yeah, there are ordained monks yeah, and real bars. And also monks, uh, you know, creating and playing music and rock bands and things like that and techno music rituals. So a lot of the stuff that students were um, really loved to see, but also were kind of shocked um, to see. And then week five, I was a really experimental approach that I took um, to this class. So week five, we um, talked about Zen in Korea, Vietnam, and even Tibet. Um, which I feel, um, you know, are areas and topics that could benefit from more discussion when we teach Zen and when we teach Buddhism. Right? These areas are often sort of overlooked. Um, it was really challenging for me to teach this week, but because I'm not really personally kind of familiar with these topics, so I had to do a lot of research, but I also learned a lot along the way. And we all, always, almost always have a student uh, with... Um, a heritage student coming from Vietnamese um, Buddhist background. So they also offer a lot of really interesting uh, insights. Um, so we talked about um, how Zen is practiced in Korea in the Song tradition, and also how Zen is practiced in Vietnam, for example, in engaged Buddhism, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, we also talked about Zen in Tibet, which is really shocking for a lot of students. Uh, so for this one, I mainly relied on Dr. Simon Shaikh's work on Tibetan Zen found in the Dunpa Manuscripts which is really kind of um, interesting uh, um, approach for me, a really new thing for me. And then the last week was actually the most enjoyable to teach for me. <laughs> um, so in the last week, we talked about Zen in the West and also Zen globalized. Um, so we talked about transmissions and lineages of the Zen traditions um, coming to the U.S., for example, and introducing California as part of the sacred landscape of Buddhism. <laughs> and the students were surprised about you know how they're located um, in this Buddhist map. <laughs> and we also talked about the introduction of Buddhism into the West, uh, its agents of transmission, how it was understood and practiced, who practiced and what ways. Um, again, there were also kind of, the students were also kind of uh, surprised um, to learn the segregated history of, of Buddhist transmission into the United States, right? How some of were 
or practiced um, in white middle class um, Buddhist circles, while you also have immigrants um, communities are trying to preserve some kind of traditional practice. Um, on the other hand, and then the second lecture was kind of experimental for me as well. Um, we talked about the Zen tradition and the phenomenon of uh, Mac mindfulness, which is a phenomenon observed by Dr. Ronald Purser in his recent book on the same topic. Um, so here we looked at the mindfulness movement and how it's intimately connected with the transmission of Zen Buddhism into the U.S. Uh, we also looked at what mindfulness is right, in the Buddhist context. A lot of students come to this class um, having some kind of um, notion that mindfulness is Buddhist or a mindfulness practice is some kind of Buddhist meditation. So we kind of talked about how they're connected and how they're not. Um, and the students were really shocked uh, to read Dr. Purser's argument on uh, like mindfulness that has become sort of this neoliberal spirituality that privatizes and pathologizes um, individual suffering and stress, sort of putting the blame of stress um, and suffering on the individual, rather on the systematic and um, structural causes. Um, so my students really enjoy the discussion. We had a lot of really uh, great discussions about how mindfulness um, it works right in our society and whether if it's really helpful um, to alleviate um, our stretches and sufferings, especially in, in this kind of pandemic age. Um, we also talked about like popular culture and technology. Um, so one of my favorite kind of topics to talk about is AI um, in Buddhism. So we introduced the AI Kanon Bosatsu or the, the AI Bodhisattva Compassion in, in Japan. Um, they spent like millions of dollars building this really highly advanced um, basically Android, right? And and they they basically, you know, just said that this is a Bodhisattva. And this Bodhisattva also preaches and talks and it's in the Kodaiji uh, temple in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. um, What's it look like? It, <laughs> Does it look like kind of like, I don't know, thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara or what? Or what's Kanon, the AI Kanon in Japan look like? I'm just oh, That's a great question. It doesn't really have uh, many arms, which is really interesting. The AI only has two arms. Yeah, so it's very, it's a humanoid um, a robot, and it has a female voice, which is interesting. Um, and it also has, I guess, breasts, <laughs> these kind of protruding round things on the chest, which is a really interesting kind of choice for the engineers. Um, so we took this opportunity to talk about, um, you know, do AIs, um, do, does this AI Bodhisattva um, have some kind of uh, enlightenment mental state, right? Is the AI Bodhisattva free of mental afflictions? Um, so it was a really interesting uh, discussion. Um, and then the last lecture of the last week of classes, we covered uh, something really new, something that I had been working on, which is Zen in the era of COVID-19. So I took some research findings uh, from my site project, which is Buddhist responses to COVID-19 in contemporary China. We kind of talked about how um, Chan and Zen Buddhists in China and Japan responded to COVID-19, how they understood the virus and also how they responded, um, especially through um, not just sort of spiritual teachings, but also through like concrete um, outreaching uh, philanthropy work, donating things and money to communities. Um, so that was really interesting for the students uh, too. Wow. Wow. Damn, girl, you covered some content. <laughs> that was in six weeks. Yeah. Wow. But we did meet four times per week and I can definitely share the syllabus right. if anybody's interested. That sounds like an amazing course. Kudos. That's, that's a lot to pull together in a very short time. So I'm curious, um, what were you, I mean, now you've given us a kind of topic outline of, of the many, many fascinating things you covered. What were kind of one or two of the best readings or resources that you found students really engaged with and what was good about them? Yeah, thank you for this question. I'm really excited to talk about some of the readings that I found. Uh, I really loved uh, two readings that I, uh, uh, that I decided to assign and I, I feel, I thank myself for assigning them and the students really loved them. And I got a lot of interactions between the students from these two readings. The one was um, a article 
by Dr. Hwansu um, Kim. Um, it's titled The Adventures of a Japanese Monk in Colonial Korea, Soma Shoei's uh, Zen Trainings with Korean Masters. It was published in the Japanese Journal of Religions um, in 2009. So in this article, um, Dr. Kim basically traces this Japanese monk, Soma, who trained for six years uh, in a Son or Korean Zen monastery. Um, and he kind of contrasted uh, Soma, this particular priest, with other Japanese Zen and Buddhist uh, colonial and missionary presences in, in Korea at the time and shows how religious identity operates within, but also beyond the colonial context. So you also, you have, at the same time, you have Japanese um, Buddhists, right, going into Korea, Manchuria, and in Mongolia doing this missionary work uh, on behalf of the Japanese empire as a kind of uh, colonizing. But then at the same time, you also have individuals like Soma who are genuinely right, trying to learn from the local Buddhist traditions um, and also forming uh, valuable kind of um, intimate bonds and relationships with the local Buddhists. Um, and the students really found this fascinating. First of all, like many of them did not even, have not even heard about, you know, Japanese presence, colonial presence, um, Buddhist colonial presence in places like Korea. And, and second, they were really shocked to also find that, you know, some of them uh, were also not completely, you know, um, in agreement with this colonial project, that they were also trying to form valuable kind of bonds and relationships. So that was a really touching, beautiful article to read together with the students. And, and the second one I really love that really answered a lot of questions that I had about the course and also that the students had about the course. For example, at the beginning, uh, we did this pre-course survey. Um, I asked the students to give me three words that they associate with them. And we created a words cloud uh, from this. And many of them, it was very kind of uniformly, um, you know, associations of, with with Zen, uh, with words like calm, meditation, peacefulness. So then I had this question, like, why do students associate Zen with these ideas and not others? And also the students were shocked to see that, you know, their peers also thought about the same thing when they think about Zen. So this second article that we assigned really answered this question for all of us. And this article was uh, putting a price on Zen, the business of redefining religion for global consumption, by um, Dr. Joshua um, Irizari, and it was published in the Journal of Global Buddhism in 2015. Um, so in this article, so Dr. Irizari basically traces historical and also cultural factors um, which have contributed to the dramatic semiotic transformation of Zen um, in the popular imaginations and also in interne international media. Um, so he basically kind of identified Zen as becoming an ideal marketing byword, right? One that's freely appropriated and commoditized. Um, he calls it a semiotic blank canvas, which is a really interesting idea. So basically this blank canvas reflects what the consumers uh, think and need and desire, right? So this part impartially kind of this uh, explains, you know, why students tend to have certain associations. Um, he also argues that this kind of Cosmopolitan appeal of Zen um, has come hand in hand with the kind of decentralization of traditional authority. And also at the same time, this kind of marketing Zen right, challenges the, the Zen clergy's role in shaping the future developments of Zen. Um, so after reading this, um, this together, uh, together with the students, we also talked about how Zen has been portrayed, has been kind of marketed within the Buddhist communities in Japan and China kind of respond right to this western perceived notion of zen for example they were trying to create these uh temple stay or uh, these temple lodging experiences right that kind of corresponded to the western imagination uh, of some kind of zen that's relaxing right that's calming that's uh anti-stress and so on and so forth so this was also a very new kind of um, research development um, for Buddhist studies, but um, it was really interesting to include the students in the discussions. Great. Well, those both sound like really wonderful articles. Can you, so I'd love to also clarify the names just again of the authors. So what were the names of the authors? Can you say them again in the names of the articles? Sure, yeah. So the first article was by Dr. Uh, Hwansu Kim. 
the title was The Adventures of a Japanese Monk in Colonial Korea, Soma Shoei Sen Training with Korean Masters. Um, I can send you the, the, the bibliographical information. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we'll link to it in the yeah. show notes. And was there a second one or we talked about two? Yeah, the second one was by uh, Dr. Joshua Irizari. Uh, and the title of the article was Putting a Price on Zen, the Business of Redefining Religion for Global Consumption. Great. Okay, thanks so much. And thanks for explaining those. That one fits with many of my students' experiences too, right? We've had a lot of conversations at the end of Intro to Buddhism about like, why does Dollarama have a Zen-scented candle? <laughs> what does that mean? In just a sentence or, to, or two, one of the things you did in your class that sounded really fascinating was something you called the mind lab. So could you explain the idea of the mind lab and what kinds of things you did? Yeah, um, so this is really not my original idea. Um, and the idea of the mind lab actually came from a fellow graduate student, a PhD student uh, in my department uh, at UCSB, uh, Peter Romoskiewicz. Um, he is my senpai, basically, and he taught he taught Zen this class uh, several times before, and he's really a veteran. He also has a lot of really wonderful ideas, innovative ideas about pedagogy. Um, so he introduced this idea to me when we kind of went over our syllabi for teaching. He also has a website, uh, PeterRomoskiewicz.com. Uh, you can definitely you should definitely check out his ideas and his blog posts about teaching. Um, so according to him, he uh, defines mind labs as quick and simple exercises to help students develop their own personal uh, phenomenology of mind. And one example, for example, that I took from his website is one of the mind lab experiments is to ask the students to sit and observe their thoughts. And then after investigating their thoughts, is there an emotional or affective quality of that thought? And if yes, and write down or observe that emotional quality. If no, and simply write out. So basically kind of observing our own minds and how it works. This is what the mind lab is. So it's not us as instructors asking the students to meditate. <laughs> We're not, you know, trained professionals to ask the students to guide the students to do that anyway. Right? So, but the mind labs are basically these exercises um, to help the students to get some kind of experience experiential knowledge of how meditation works and how the psychology of the mind, right? how Buddhist theories of the mind works. And so did you change the kind of mind lab experiences that you were assigning based on the content you were delivering? Yeah. Back? So um, after taking this idea uh, from Peter, I kind of developed my own exercises. So I had two different kinds. One is uh, without video. So basically giving them instructions to follow and questions to answer. But for example, I get them to, I got my students to observe, to pick an object in their room or in their surrounding. It could be a pen or a backpack. And then I ask them to observe this object with um, their five central faculties, um, examining also the info that we can collect using these five senses and also asking them to kind of uh, examine the feelings we have towards them and our volitions, right? What do we want to do with these objects? And we also talked about questions like, how do we know what the object is? How do we know what to do with it? Which one is real? The object, the name of the object, the concept of the object, the function of the object, which one is the real? Um, if objects is, if the object's projected on a screen or uh, in a photograph or in an image, which is the real and, and why? Right? And also, is it possible to know something without depending on our senses? It, or, or also, is it possible to observe anything without developing uh, judgments, feelings, and, and even desires towards them? Right? So these are kind of uh, exercises to help the students to observe how their own mind works right? based on um, after learning about Buddhist um, explanations of how the mind works and how the consciousness works. And we also had mind labs with video instruction. So this is where they actually kind of experience a Buddhist practice that trains the mind, right? For example, in the Japanese Zen Buddhism week, I gave them a Zazen instruction video from YouTube, a uh, qualified Japanese Zen priest, right? Teaching actually his global audience on YouTube how to practice Zazen. And there's a whole kind of 10 minutes blank space right within that video where you can actually 
practice um, is a Zen, and then there's a follow up after that too. So the students are asked to follow um, his instructions or according to his uh, tradition and, um, and, uh, and practices. And then just, I just ask the students to observe how they feel in the process, right? What does it feel sitting down that particular posture, um, subscribed by the, by the, by the priest and how they felt after during the meditation, um, how this is different from the kinds of meditation they had before. And then in the uh, Korean zone, uh, Korean Zen, um, week, we tried this Kamwa zone, um, inst- instruction, uh, meditation where the students actually have to follow instructions and uh, do a meditation, not like the Japanese as Zen, but with some kind of koan, right? Some kind of in Korean, uh, Son tradition called kanwa, like observing the critical phrase. So having some kind of critical phrase to focus on while, um, meditating. So then students can compare right, how meditation works in different Zen traditions across different regions, but also students who are uncomfortable with participating right, or actually sitting down and doing some kind of meditation. They're also encouraged to just watch the video instead and sort of observing how the techniques are different. But apparently everybody uh, participated. So I asked them about this in the survey, whether if uh, somebody was uh, uncomfortable participating in any of these mind lab experiments, and none of, none of them, none of the students um, said that they were uncomfortable. So it was interesting. That's great. So even though you gave them an option, surely to not participate, they actually all chose to participate. Yeah, which is interesting. And then another assignment I wanted to ask you about is your final assignment was something called a media essay. Could you explain this? Yeah. Um, so the media essay was something that um, I developed uh, when I first taught uh, Introduction to Buddhism last summer. I wanted to create a research assignment um, that can really uh, teach students concrete skills, right? not just sort of um, having them to do a, uh, a research paper on a topic in Buddhism, but also develop some really useful skills along the way. So the media essay is basically a um, traditional research paper, right? Plus some kind of media presentation components, right? It could be in the form of a website, podcast, YouTube videos, interactive slideshows, so on and so forth. So it's really up to the students to kind of express their creative side. So the media essay was also scaffolded. Uh, I really like this approach. It really helps the students to not procrastinate. <laughs> so I asked them to turn in an outline. Uh, which is worth at 10% actually uh, very early on in the quarter. And then we also discussed these through Zoom appointments. Um, I gave them lists of readings and recommendations. I had a lot of books as PDFs because our library was closed. So I was, um, I had to actually find a lot of resources for the students, right? In order for their research uh, papers to work. <laughs> so we did that through the Zoom appointments. And then they have to uh, submit a written draft. So this is basically your traditional college paper. It has to be completely written with citations and bibliography and everything. So this was at 30%. So they had to submit this actually in the fourth week of the course. So that gives them a lot of ample time to do editing, to do changes uh, based on my feedback later so that they can get a better grade at the very end. And then the final product was the media essay. So they have to turn the written product. They can either copy and paste it into a website where they can read it uh, or present it in some way in a YouTube video or a podcast. So how they do that is, is really up to them. So this is where um, the, the skills part comes in, right? So of course, doing such a research project um, teaches students how to do research, of course, right? But also um, I wanted to teach something called media literacy, right? Um, for example, when we encounter images, when we Google Zen, the images that we get right in the results, right? Are they all about Zen? Are they, how are they associated with Zen? Right? If you choose to use one of these images, like why are you picking this image and not others? So developing some kind of literacy towards the media content that we encounter and um, teaching the students to evaluates these information and also how to choose them strategically to support their specific arguments in the paper and also communication skills. They've done their research, right? They've written 
a great paper. They found something really interesting based on questions that they asked. How are they going to present that in a very communicative way to their audience, right? Their audience being me and also other people and also their peers. Um, so this is where the students got really creative. There's YouTube videos. You can see uh, influences of, you know, current pop culture on the students' perceptions of what makes a good communication. Right? So they have YouTube videos where, you know, like a YouTuber, they're explaining, they're posing the questions. They're doing this really kind of eye-catching intro, uh, giving you a hook and then explaining the research. It's really, really interesting. And also podcasts. Um, and e-magazines and interactive slides we got a lot of really wonderful um, kind of uh, products from the students in the end. That's awesome. Um, I'm curious, was it a struggle to give them feedback after the week four deadline when you were still in the midst of recording everything? That's a lot of feedback to give quickly in a timely fashion for 27 students. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that's only doable for a smaller class like this. I don't think it would be possible um, to do it really well if you have a lot of students. For example, for the Intro to Buddhism class, I had 60 students in that summer. And although I had a TA, it's still a lot of work for the TA and also for myself. So it, it really depends on how many students are there. But also I, I gave all of my assignments have really flexible deadlines. So I don't really, I only have a final, final deadline. Right? So they have to give me something by this date because I have to submit their grades into the system mm -hmm. um, any, you know, any submissions after that is just too late uh, because I have a deadline to kind of adhere to uh, for the university. But before that, they can set up their own deadlines and there's no penalties. Um, that way, students who want to just finish the assignments quickly so that they can focus on other things, they will, you know, turn them in. I can give them feedback. So actually it was more of a scattered, um, you know, stream of submissions, which worked really well. Um, I had uh, friends who questioned this method. Um, they said, you know, isn't this sort of too much freedom for the students? They might just alter in their assignments at the very last minute. Um, I also had the same kind of uh, doubt and suspicion, but it turned out that that's um, not true, at least for this class. Actually, a lot of students wanted to, you know, get the assignments out of the way. So it's more of a scattered, which is great for grading for the grader because then you don't have to do everything at once. What a respectful approach to during a global pandemic when everybody's when everybody, like including all our students, are doing probably lots of juggling in their exactly. lives. Right. So I'm just curious, can you give us an example of one that one of these media essays that was really wonderful? Yeah, thank you for this question. I'm really excited to share some of my students' wonderful work. Uh, and by the way, by um, by really great project or by really wonderful um um, actually, I had a rubric uh, for both the written uh, submission and also for the final media. Um, and there are different rubrics, uh, but basically, uh, a really great media essay was graded on uh, media literacy, right? How critical they are of the media content that they choose, right? Not just sort of including a random picture of a Buddha, um, especially those like fat laughing Buddhas, right? <laughs> In a class on Zen Buddhism, right? Something like that does not really. Um, reflect a critical approach to, to media content on the web. Um, so how carefully and how respectfully right, they choose media um, components in their paper, um, how it's presented, communicativeness, and also creativeness. But based on this, I had um, I, you know, a bunch of really great um, projects. But four that really stood out was uh, one student created a podcast on um, the, the title of her our project was Connecting Zen Buddhism and the Black Lives Matter Movement. Um, it was a really timely to uh, topic um, at the time. And she really dig, you know, dug really deep um, online into all kinds of resources, looking at how the Zen community responded to the Black Lives Matter movement and how they supported also the movement. And her podcast was made in this really beautiful way she asked she structured it with uh, really critical questions right in different uh, sections and she also included um really like suitable appropriate musical kind of uh, i guess fade fade ins and fade outs right through um between these different sections so it was really a pleasure to read and she wasn't really reading her paper too she was really engaging with the material and there was also another youtube video by um 
that one student who is uh, majoring in religious studies, uh, he wrote a paper on sexual abuse in Zen Buddhism, which is a really, uh, you know, innovative and new topic. There isn't a lot of material, but I really, um, you know, really impressed about his you know, research skills. And he did this really wonderful um, essay and he did it in this YouTuber kind of, um, you know, structured style that was really engaging to watch. Uh, another student did an interactive slideshow, um, incorporating her own voice over the slides, which is really, really cool, right? I didn't even know how to do that. So at the slides were sort of turning her, her voice is also perfectly timed. And there's also music back in the background. So it's really beautifully done. And the topic was Zen Buddhism in Latin America, which is a phenomenon that she observed in her home country, uh, which is really fascinating as well. Again, it's a topic that, you know, uh, probably needs uh, more coverage and more uh, research as well. And lastly, there was a student who did this really aesthetically appealing, beautiful e-magazine using some kind of, um, I don't even know what, some kind of, um, you know, top-notch designing software. It was really professionally looking, uh, e-magazine on science, religion, uh, technology in Zen Buddhism. So she talked about all the different kinds of new and interesting technology that Zen Buddhism is incorporating in their uh, practice and also their outreach. Um, so these four projects, really mind-blowing. Um, so many things. Amazing. And I'm wondering, did the students get a chance to hear or see each other's work or was it only for you as the audience? Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, I had thought about this, um, having the students give feedback to each other. Um, but because it was a six week course, it was kind of short and a lot of students didn't have enough time to work on their final product, uh, products before submitting them in. So there were just in, there was just not enough time for um, the students to kind of show each other and give feedback. And also I taught when I met some of the students uh, through the one-to-one -one Zoom meetings, some of them also kind of, you know, expressed that they didn't want me to uh, post their final products online. So I, I actually asked for their permissions. Do you mind if I share this with the world? Um, some of them um, said, okay, you can share it. But some of them said, you know, I prefer that you know, it's, it's kept private. Um, so those two things, mm -hmm. but I think it would be a really great idea if I had more time and if I thought uh, enough about how to better carry this out, but it would be a great idea for the students to learn from each other. Definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, very difficult though, in a six week format. And then you also had them do something called self grading. So can you describe the results of the self grading question that you had in your evaluation form? And how you interpreted that data? Did their self-evaluation factor into their grades for the course? Oh, great. Thank you. Um, so this is something also very experimental that I did for the first time this quarter. Um, so I asked them in the post-course survey um, how to grade themselves, right? How, you know, what kind of grade would you give yourself based on your performance um, this quarter? Uh, the results was really interesting. So 37.5% of the students actually gave themselves an A plus, um, and 41% gave themselves an A. So the majority uh, gave themselves A or A plus. However, still, you know, still uh, quite a number of students did not really feel that they were satisfied with their performance. Uh, so I also had a follow up question asking them what might be the reason for their dissatisfaction with their uh, performance. And the top four reasons were uh, number one, not enough energy or motivation to do academic work. Well, that's really understandable, right, given the circumstances. Number two, uh, not enough time. Number three, personal issues. Number four, COVID-19 related issues. Um, so you can see that, you know, a lot of these things are really impacting how students approach studying and uh, university coursework. It's really understandable. But I also asked them about if you were to do this course again, what kind of things would you do instead right, to improve your performance? Many of them talked about, again, time management, how to better manage time, also um, how to take notes right, and to, uh, how to start uh, the researching process, their big projects early on. So mostly uh, with time management issues, which again really reminded me that this is perhaps right, one of the essential skills that we as educators in higher education should, you know, spend some time 
teaching. We don't always, right? Where we don't always make the space for that in it's our courses. Yeah. Oh, but um, I forgot to answer um, your other question. So did they self-evaluation uh, factor into their grade for the course? Uh, no, I just kind of wanted to get a sense of how they felt about their grades, but it kind of corresponded to their actual grades, <laughs> which is interesting. So most students um, in the course did get an A or A plus with some exceptions who got uh, B or B minus, but those students really struggle to, to even turn in the assignments, um, even after ample time. So, so that was a issue. I tried to reach out to them through email, through Zoom meetings, but there's still a lot of things that I wasn't really able to kind of help the students with, especially when it comes to time management. So why did you choose to ask students to give so much feedback on every aspect of the course? Um, yeah, um, so there's two things, I think. First of all is um, our, our university has this sort of uh, general um, evaluation right, yeah, that's sent to the students where they have to fill out these um, bubble sheets, multiple choices, and then submit uh, to the university and we get the results back. Uh, but the questions are really general and I always found that they're not really um, informative for me. Um, they don't really tell me much about student opinions, about how the, the course content, for example, is structured. Um, so I, I, I wanted to know more, right, simply. But also I wanted to get data. I wanted to get some concrete data to help me become a better teacher, of course, and but also to share these data to future teaching training sessions I'm also serving at the lead TA this year for my department. So I wanted to show some of these data to other graduate students who might have to teach our TA. It's going to be really useful, especially this year right, under these um, unusual circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was even valuable, the Facebook post that you released with all of the charts and graphs. And yeah, we wanted to ask you, would it be possible to maybe link to that in the show notes? Yeah, definitely. I would love to. Um, I can also um, share with everybody else the, the results from the pre-course survey. Um, some of the questions. What were kind of the big takeaways from that student feedback? You referred already to their preference for synchronous that you evaluated from the pre-course survey, but either pre or post, what were the other kind of surprises there in that data for you? Yeah, um, there was a lot of surprises uh, from the post-course survey, which was really interesting to read and I learned a lot from, you know, um, from, from these results about online teaching in general. Um, so first of all, about uh, synchronicity, uh, it was really shocking to find that uh, the majority, actually 91.7% of the students found the uh, asynchronous format suitable to their situation. So they picked this one, the majority picked this one, I think it was uh, 75% or something, choices. And then in the end, right after six weeks, 91.7% of them thought it was suitable. Um, so this is the um, recorded lecture format without meeting in real time face to face. Um, and the rest wish, so less than 10% um, of the students wish that there were more synchronous interactions, uh, maybe in discussions, things like that. Um, and also I asked them about for uh, future classes, right? As long as the pandemic is still happening. Um, 62.5% of the students prefer to stick with the asynchronous approach as long as the pandemic is still going on. Only 8.3% of the students wish to go back to in-person classes as soon as possible, which is also really shocking for me to see. Mm. Um, so that's one big uh, takeaway. And also on course content, um, the huge majority of the students um, found the lectures to be overwhelmingly too long. <laughs> so they found them to be interesting. They were really kind to say this to me, but they also thought it was too long. So 80 minutes per lecture. This is an entire like, recording, right? 80 minutes long, four times per week. It's just too much information. Although that is the kind of standard format right, for face-to-face -face lectures before the pandemic which is interesting to learn. And then later I learned from other graduate students who also taught in summer that they actually recorded their lectures in like 30 minute segments. So they shortened the little lectures and they perhaps arranged the topics, uh, arranged the lectures into smaller topics. So like 10 minutes on a smaller topic and then 20 minutes on a smaller topic. Um, so that I think that would be definitely a better approach to just recording these long 
lectures, which is really hard on the instructor as well. I taught online in the summer too, and I found that it was hard for me to sustain my own kind of energy, especially just speaking yeah. to a screen. So I, I mostly chose to do kind of bite-sized pieces because I think what I do mostly in a classroom is I actually lecture in bite-sized pieces and then we do something, you know, then I, then I throw it back to them and they do something with, you know, think, pair, share or whatever. So I tried to imagine an online equivalent to that, even though they didn't, they couldn't talk to each other in between, but yeah, recording smaller chunks, but that's, imp that's important to note. Thank you. Any other things that were kind of surprises of what they did or didn't enjoy? Um, yeah, there's a few more things. So um, uh, quite a few students actually told me that they were able to watch, that they enjoyed actually watching the lectures on two time speed, so double the speed. That's mm. one like really cool function on Panopto um, that uh, it's really interesting, which really, you know, kind of makes me think about how um, how editing, right? YouTube style editing has really influenced how we consume information right, in this generation. We want quicker, uh, more bite-sized information. Those students actually found my speaking too slow and they had to like speed it up. Um, and I tried kind of listening to my own lectures with double speed and I sounded like a chipmunk, but that's inevitable. <laughs> so it's kind of amazing how quickly students can consume information that are and also used to consuming information. So that's one thing. And another thing was the huge majority, 87% of the students actually found the face-to-face, -face, uh, synchronous Zoom meetings discuss their outlines and also drafts really helpful. So the outline meetings were mandatory, but the draft meetings are um, optional. But actually, a lot of students did want to meet one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I think they, were, they weren't really interested in meeting as a class in person on Zoom because interaction between each other is difficult through that format anyway. But they were... Uh, really, uh, they really enjoy or they really preferred one-on-one, -on -one, like face-to-face -face interaction through Zoom, where you can actually, you know, listen to them and talk to them. That way, they can get. I think that's the sort of the, the closest thing they can get to some kind of human interaction. Um, so that's one really interesting kind of nuance of the data. Yeah, that's so fascinating, and I don't know if many people in my circle here, anyway, have recognized the possibility of the one-on-one -on -one, uh, Zoom meeting with students. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious, did you do transcriptions from your lectures or did, was that not necessary like for accessibility? Oh, that's a great question. Yes. So Panopto actually has the function to create subtitles automatically. That helps with, so some of the softwares that uh, university prefer, they probably do have these kinds of abilities, functions uh, embedded already. Um, so that's useful. So you can Really quickly, uh, you can add bookmarks. So I, I always added uh, bookmarks to my lectures so the students can easily jump to certain sections uh, while skipping other sections, which is, you know, a wonderful thing. <laughs> Actually, I wish I had that function, you know, when I was a, an undergrad student in these huge classes. <laughs> you can actually jump to the important parts of the lectures. So after this great conversation about the detail of this course and all of the things you kind of got back from them, which sounds like they, many of them had pretty significant learning experiences to create those kind of research-based creative projects at the end. How has your teaching philosophy changed out of this experience? So my teaching philosophy is still very much a work in process. I'm still learning so much about teaching through teaching. So it's, it's really exciting to gain a little bit of insight every time I teach or TA. And also teaching in COVID-19 really made me become more aware about how students learn, how they want to learn, what they want to learn, especially when it comes to Buddhism and also Zen, things like this. So they are really technology oriented, um, but they're also very flexible, um, I think. Um, and they really want relevant information and material and also arguments uh, for their immediate concerns. So for example, topics um, such as uh, Zen Buddhism in the West, Zen globalized, Zen in neoliberal capitalism, technology, AI, right? These topics really got a lot more from, a lot more discussion, right? interesting discussion from the students. It seems that they're more interested in these things that are immediately relevant to their concerns. I also realized that there's a lot of holes that probably needs to be filled uh, in my teaching. For example, media literacy, religion literacy, um, valuation of information, 
we often give students assignments, um, such as like a research paper, but um, we don't really sort of hold their hands and teach them the skills, right, to carry that project out um, um, so that they can do it well, right, instead of just submitting something that they wrote like the night before the deadline. So I think building crucial, useful skills, concrete skills, for example, how to do research, how to evaluate information that they find through researching, how to cite properly, especially when it comes to online content, right? How to choose, right, certain media content over others uh, strategically, right, to make your points, right? These are really crucial skills, I think, for today's world um, that's really exploding with information that, um, that I want to focus uh, with the students in my future teaching courses. So right now it's more locating, more tending towards, my philosophy is more tending towards locating skills um, that the students might need and also focusing on, on teaching them, teaching those skills um, using the medium of Buddhism. Um, but, but you can definitely teach those, those skills also through other subjects too. So I think that's one of the um, advantages we have uh, as instructors of humanities courses. Right? We can definitely teach these exciting content, but we can also teach useful, transferable skills through these content to the students. Yeah, because I mean, for many of our students, they will not become the same kind yeah. of nerds we are <laughs> who want to just study Buddhist exactly. studies forever. So okay. the content can be in some ways secondary or the avenue through which to also cultivate lasting skills. I agree with you a lot there. We're wrapping up now. You did a beautiful job of telling us about this course. Some things worked better online, some things not as well online as you'd hoped. Most importantly, what would you do differently next time? If there was a next time for you, if you were going to grow this course from emergency remote to effective online, what would you do differently? So the things that I would do differently, definitely based on the student feedback, is to record the online lectures into smaller chunks. <laughs> Um, so definitely make them shorter and more succinct, maybe organized under a uh, really clear title so they know exactly what kind of information they'll be getting when they click into the video, um, get straight to the point. Um, I also would definitely keep and maybe expand some of the individual Zoom meetings, maybe create smaller size groups amongst the students so that they can also interact with themselves. Like you suggested, maybe having the students give feedback um, to their own media research uh, projects, uh, incorporating like, uh, you know, peer evaluation and peer feedback into that process. I think that would be definitely a valuable portion that also adds the human touch, I guess, the, adds the interaction side um, into online teaching. Yeah, that's great advice. It's so hard in the virtual classroom to find ways to build community, but maybe small groups or even pairing students would be a possibility. And then lastly, I wanted to ask you, how does teaching connect with your own research and writing as a PhD student? Was it too distracting? Did it, or did it help you clarify your thinking? Um, so I really love teaching as a student. Uh, so it's not distracting at all. Uh, actually, before I came into the PhD program, um, right after I finished my BA at U of T, <laughs> I went into ESL teaching. So I learned a lot about um, how to teach students with, you know, various kinds of backgrounds from there. Um, and I, you know, I'm lucky to kind of bring a lot of that into um, higher ed. Um, so it's not distracting for me at all. It's something that I genuinely love. Um, and I find that it clarifies my thinking and it helps me prepare my exams, for example, that I have to do the comprehensive exams for my PhD program. Those are, those are the fun thing coming up for you, right? This winter. Yeah, reading has been really fun. It's really a privilege to be able to read so much. And I honestly want to tell every PhD student I am in contact with, you'll never know so much as that moment when you've just done your comprehensive exactly. exam, right? Because <laughs> you master a ton of information really quickly. It's a good feeling. So enjoy. Um, is there anything that you want to add or that you want to emphasize for our listeners before we sign off? Actually, um, yeah. So this course was definitely a really pleasure to teach. I'm really shocked about all the wonderful kind of projects the students was, were able to come up with. So that was really a big highlight of my summer. And also I learned a lot from the helpful kind of comments and feedback uh, from the surveys I posted on Facebook and elsewhere. 
So people are kind of writing back to me. And like you guys are reaching out to me. So this other side, right, of the post teaching, kind of building a community where you can kind of talk to each other. So this is also a really beautiful kind of thing that came out from the whole process. Well, thank you so much for, thank you firstly for sharing, for even developing a course with an eye and a mind towards what students actually want and what they receive from from online teaching. So that was already just a really generous move you made in the in the planning of your course. And then thank you also so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for your kind words. It's just really a pleasure speaking with you guys. Thanks to Gagena for your openness and your generosity. There were lots of really great ideas in there and lots of resources. Thanks to the wonderful Dr. Betsy Moss for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. Thanks also to you for listening. Please visit our website at teachingbuddhism.net for show notes and to find links to articles and other resources mentioned here. Also a special thanks to the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto for fully supporting the production of this podcast. Also thanks to Dr. Frances Garrett for her support as a contributing producer. Be well. Be well.